Hey up and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis and thank you for tuning in again today. Action-packed show for you. We've got uh, not one, but two T-O-P-T-I-P today. Two top tips, we've got Emma Burdett, Visit Belfast, and Danielle Phillips from Inside Out Communication. The main guest today is Ash McDonald. Ash is the expert on everything luxury communications and marketing. We are looking at digital marketing from a luxury angle and talking about how real high-end brands are dealing with COVID-19, what makes luxury such a segment and such an interesting marketing place to, to look and talk about. It does operate like nothing else you'll ever see in the world. It's a very strange counterintuitive marketing segment. So really interesting chat and there's lots that uh, the rest of us can learn from that. If you're watching the video on YouTube, you'll see that I've picked my outfit perfectly to talk about luxury goods. I'm wearing, you can see there, it's an Atari t-shirt, um, which I picked up from H&M for about a fiver and it's creased and not ironed because I fished it out of the bottom of the drawer. Not really the attire to talk about luxury, but I'm sure you'll all forgive me, especially if you're just listening to the audio. Before we get started today, there's a couple of things I need to tell you about. First of all... There you go, you can hear that. The Moyi Coffee is back. Pleased to have Moyi Coffee on aboard as sponsors. If you want to check out, check them out, you can find them at Moyi Coffee, M-O-Y-E-E, Coffee, you know how to spell that, .ie or .co.uk, moyicoffee.ie or .co.uk. They've currently got a Protect the Chain campaign going on. Check out hashtag Protect the Chain. You'll see what's happening there. If you buy one of the big bags of coffee there, so if you buy two, you get one free. And what that does is that helps them keep up their order volumes with their farmers in Ethiopia and Kenya, and it helps them on their roadmap towards delivering 450 uh, farmers in Ethiopia and Kenya with a living income. So please do check them out. They're on Instagram, Moyi Coffee IRL, and on Twitter with the same name, or just find them on the website, moyicoffee.ie or .co.uk. Before we get going as well, we also need to wrap up this. This is a copy of Lost and Found, a Rand Fishkin's book. Uh, in the last full episode, um, the USA edition, there was a competition set which was, can you name the soccer team, the football team in Rand's home city of Seattle? The answer, of course, was Seattle Sounders. And we had a, a number, hundreds if not thousands of entries, <clears throat> less than 10. But that's okay. Um, we had a number of entries. Everyone who uh, entered got it right. Randomly selected winner, which was just a case of me writing them all on a bit of paper and pulling one out. And Jane won. I've got Jane's email address and Jane's details. Um, so Jane, please watch out for your email. I'm not going to read your email address out. And I only asked for your first name. But Jane, you're a winner. We'll send this book to you. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. Please do post about it on social media when you get it. Just so I know it's arrived. Right, so now we're going to get on to uh, this week's show, episode four. I'm going to start, first of all, with a top tip. Oh, because I know you all love it. T-O-P-T-I-P. T-O-P-T-I-P. Top tip from Emma Burdett. Emma is the digital marketing manager at Visit Belfast and a friend of mine and somebody whose advice I trust quite a lot. Working on your own, you lose a bit of a feedback loop from when you're working with other people in agencies or offices or wherever. And Emma is one of the voices I turn to when I need an answer, um, some harebrained scheme I've got or some copy I've written or whatever it is. I bounce it to Emma. I'm like, tell me what you think of this honestly. And she always does tell you what she thinks honestly. You know, you either get, yeah, world class crack on or nah, bit shit, go back to the drawing board. But that's the sort of feedback you need, and that's why I keep asking her for it. So uh, Emma's top tip is about uh, Google My Business. Greg talked about it last week on the last show. Uh, Emma dives a little bit deeper into it this time. So listen up for a T-O-P-T-I-P. Emma, here you go. Hi, my name is Emma Burdett. I'm the Digital Marketing Manager at Visit Belfast. And my top tip for Andy's podcast this week is a little reminder for you to make sure that you're checking in on your Google My Business reviews. Hopefully by this point, you will definitely have got Google My Business set up. It's a little knowledge panel on the right-hand side whenever people search for your business and it concludes everything from name of your business, phone number, uh, where you are on Google Maps and images and addresses and things like that. So they also have a space for reviews. Um, and that really gives you an opportunity for people to have confidence in you before they visit you or purchase from you. Um, so the more reviews, the better, obviously. Um, and also having more reviews, positive reviews, pushes down any negative reviews that it might have. 
Um, so definitely respond to reviews whenever you're getting them. Um, engage with your customer. Thank them for taking the time to write a review for you. Um, also, don't forget to engage in any negative reviews and just sort of tell them that you're sorry about their experience. Obviously, some people um, don't want to be engaged with, but if you feel it's a conversation that you could have with them, it allows you the opportunity to show other people who may come across that negative review that you've at least tried to engage with that customer. Um, encourage people to leave reviews for you. So if they're coming in, definitely say to them, you know, don't forget to leave us a review on Google. Um, if they've purchased something from you, maybe a follow up email that includes um, a reminder to review you. And also please encourage them to include a photograph as well, because um, consumer and user photographs are obviously way more trustworthy as well, because you're seeing something from the eye of the consumer and not just from the eye of what somebody wants to sell to the consumer. Um, so yeah, those are my top tips. Definitely get involved with Google My Business Reviews. Emma, thank you very much for that. So please make sure you do check out the top tip. I'm going to start uploading all of the top tips individually to YouTube. So you'll be able to go back and find them all again, one at a time. Give us a week to do that, will you? Um, before you go looking for them and complaining that I haven't done it. So thank you very much. Um, I said we're going to have two top tips this week, and there's a reason for that. Partly, I've got a few top tips that I can use, but partly because one of them that I got through is so timely. So Danielle from Inside Out Communications, many, many, many years ago, uh, when I had hair and she was young, we worked together uh, at Newcastle College before she went off to Australia. But now she's moved back. She runs um, an internal comms consultancy and is definitely worth talking to. What we're looking at here is uh, bringing teams back off COVID, some people working at home, some people working remotely. Important for people now, especially at the end of June as people start to return to work full time. So, uh, Danielle, let's hear what you've got to say. Hi, I'm Danielle Phillips from Inside Out Communications Consulting. So I've got a couple of tips to share with you about how we're going to manage this transition from the lockdown period through to back working in the office environment. And during that time, we're going to have a bit of a hybrid situation where there'll be some employees working from home and some in the office. It's really important that we continue to keep this really great internal comms best practice that we've developed over the past couple of months going. So three top tips to help you do that. The first is think of your meetings with a bit more structure in mind. So adopt the old school principles of having an agenda, having a chairperson, recording minutes and sending those actions out afterwards. It'll really help those who aren't able to attend in person. Even better if you can send a recording of the meeting too. Number two, think about those who are not in the office when you're having incidental conversations. So if you're catching up with someone at the photocopier over lunch, think about how you can capture and record that information for those who might not have heard it firsthand. And number three, ask for feedback. We're all learning about this together. So make sure you're regularly checking in with employees both at home and in the office to find out if this is working for them. I've got loads more tips like this in my latest blog on insideoutconsulting.co.uk. Let me know if I can help you further. Thanks. Danielle, thank you for that top tip, the T-O-P-T-I-P. I know you're probably all bored of COVID-related stuff now, and um, Experts and Genius is predicting the future and everything to do with COVID. Um, it is getting, it is wearing thin, but listen, it's not going away, and it keeps evolving and it keeps changing. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about coming back from COVID and marketing teams and, and things like that. So we talked a bit before about agencies and what agencies are going to do, but I think one of the key things that I look at and find when I'm working with clients now is that marketing um, as a brief in organizations, there's so many different things we can do. Tactically, there's so many different options, so many different channels. Pressures are ramping up. Sales have maybe been down or maybe sales are up, depending on what industry you're in. And there's always this extra pressure to real to do more in marketing. And this is a bit of a plea, actually, to do less, which might sound counterintuitive, but the best marketing I see in companies, wherever I work, whatever the industry is that I that are going and consulting, and the ones who do really, really well are the ones who focus. That's focusing on the important things. Who are you targeting and why are they going to buy from you? And then driving that message home time and time again. The ones where I see things going badly or the ones where I'm called in to work with companies and we start looking and go, Andy, marketing's not working for us. And you go, okay, let's have a look at this. They're doing so much. 
They're trying to be everywhere all the time, lots of different channels, lots of different things all the time, just content, 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 marketing, 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 promotion, promotion, promotion. And there's no focus. And you're trying to do too many things. Now, it does feel sometimes counterintuitive, but the people who understand this the most are usually the people at the top of the business. Right? So if you're under pressure to do more, do more, do more, try and get conversations with senior leaders in your team. Because senior leaders understand that they need to focus to focus on the big strategic problem that they have in the organization. And it's the same thing in marketing. What is the main problem you have? Right? Put that fire out first and then move on to the next one. Don't try and fight all the fires at once because you just end up getting beaten by them. So try and focus on your marketing and well, okay, well, what do we focus on? We're doing all these things. We're maybe not measuring them all properly. We don't know which is working, which is contributing. If we're going to kill something, what's going to happen? You know, will that impact the business? It's a nervy time. And I get that. But go back to those foundation stones, the things I keep talking about all the time. Who are you targeting and why are they going to buy from you? Really understand that. And then look at what your objectives are for the year. Once you've got those three things in place, what you do afterwards starts to make a little bit more sense. Where are we going to focus? Ask yourself the question, will that help us achieve that target? Whatever that target is that you've set. Will this customer... Mr. or Mrs. Target customer, will they be interested in us doing this? And if you use that as your test, if you use that as your benchmark, that's how you can start to focus and cut down, right? Now, I'm aware that the bigger the organization, the more complicated your marketing function is, but you've probably got more people running that as well. So it's relative to the size of your organization, but make sure you have that focus in what you're doing. I was talking to an Irish tech company, I, I won't say any more than that, about trying to do some work with them and try and get on their podcast is one of the things I'm trying to do. Um, so hello, if you're listening, I'd love to be a guest and trying to, to sort of just talk to them about doing that and, and a few other bits and bobs. Now, what came back was they have a real clear focus for the next six months on a different area to what I talk about, to what I'm an expert in. So, you know, a bit of, we'll see, but this is what we're focusing on for the next six months. And I love that. Wasn't it? Oh, you'd be a great guest. It'd be nice to get you on, but it's not really going to fit with what we're doing. It doesn't fit. Come back in six months time. Focus. Really clear. No offense taken. I'd still love to get on. So I, you know, hi, still listening, but it's not going to happen now. That's okay. I fully understand that. That clarity, that focus of we're focusing on this customer and doing this thing because this is what our strategic plan is as a business. Great. So bugger off, Andy, come back another time. Perfect. I love it. That company has gone up in my estimation, not down because they won't have me on their podcast. That's fine. So have that ruthlessness to what you're trying to do and really, really, really focus on it. There are hundreds of things you can do and they're not all going to help. Focus on the ones that add the most value and then move on from there. Right. Enough ranting from me. You came here to listen about uh, luxury goods. So Ash McDonald is from Galway. Um, is based now in Dublin and spends, under normal circumstances anyway, half of a life in Paris. Um, hopefully you don't get embarrassed by me butchering French pronunciations. Ash is fluent in French and pronounces them properly. Uh, I had to brush up on my pronunciation of Hermes for, for this rather than Hermes, um, which I was told is definitely wrong. Uh, but look, that's just how it works, right? I'm from Yorkshire. Give us a break. But no, we had a brilliant chat and I really enjoyed it. So here, have a listen to this. Today, I am pleased to welcome Ash McDonald to the Strategy Sessions. Ash has a career in luxury goods and is joining us today from Dublin. How are you? Hi, Andy. I'm Grace. Thank you. How are you doing? Uh, uh, over the moon to have you on the show. Uh, we <laughs> met at an event in, uh, again in Dublin, probably a yes. while ago, uh, where you were speaking about luxury, which is your thing. And from watching you speak at that event, it's been brilliant to be able to have you on the show because nobody I've met yet has the knowledge that you do about this subject. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> I feel the pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. So do you want to tell us um, a little bit about your career and how you come to know so much about luxury? Sure. So um, just to say I'm from Ireland. I'm from Galway originally, but I was always really interested in fashion and in the perfumes industry, actually, especially in the creation of even the bottles, the designs, the fragrances, everything. And I realized 
actually there are many companies and many even groups that are managing uh, these brands around the world. So I decided to head for France to, to go and study and work in Paris and to try and make my way into one of these brands, which I managed to do after a few years, they let me in. So I worked um, first for a pure player, so an e-retailer called Money Frere, a fantastic company, 100% online. So they would be kind of a, a French answer to Net-a-Porter, which surprisingly, even with its French name, isn't French. Uh, they have over 200 luxury brands. That's kind of where I really started to learn about luxury goods and luxury marketing and where digital and luxury can kind of merge together. And then I worked for LVMH Group as a digital analyst. And then I worked for Parfum Christian Dior. So the perfumes, cosmetics and makeup side of, uh, of the Dior brand. And I was in charge of digital for the travel retail sector. And now it's been a year since I left LVMH Group and I've joined Google. And I'm a global luxury account manager there. So today I'm rep- it's my own views and I'm just sharing like my experiences and um, hopefully share some insights and some tips for people that are inter- interested in this industry. Brilliant stuff. Now, I should also at this stage apologize to anyone listening who is a French speaker. Um, at some point, I may well try pronouncing some French names and some French words and will butcher them uh, mercilessly. So I do apologize for that. But Ash, you've lived, you lived in Paris for a number of years, so your French pronunciation is on point. That's right, isn't it? <laughs> well, I like to think so, but I'm not sure French people would agree. So, Well, you'll <laughs> certainly be on this, on this conversation with me. You'll be fine. Don't <laughs> worry about it. So, so let, let's just start with a definition. I know all good university lectures start with a definition of what the problem is, but luxury, <laughs> what do you mean when you talk about luxury brands? Where are we? What sort of brands are you talking about? What pot are we in? Yeah, so good point. Basically, when we talk about luxury goods today, we're going to be talking about non-essential goods, but goods that are highly desired. Um, from my own experience working within luxury, I focused mainly on three different areas. So the first would be fashion and leather goods. So within fashion leather goods, you'd have brands like Gucci, like Chanel, like Dior, like Louis Vuitton. Then you'd have perfumes and cosmetics. That would be probably the profit driving division in general of the luxury industry because items within this division are more attainable. So within perfumes and cosmetics, you're going to have, of course, all these perfumes um, that are created by these various brands. So again, Chanel and Dior would be two big players, but you have lots of others as well who are in there and doing really well. Givenchy, Lancôme. Um, and then hard luxury. So hard luxury would be watches and jewellery. And within that, you'd have, for example, uh, Tiffany's would be a huge player, but you'd also have the likes of Rolex doing watches. Gosh, yeah. And, and the luxury, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on is that the luxury industry works like nothing else on the planet. From a marketing perspective, it's counterintuitive. A lot of the basic principles of marketing are turned on the head when it comes to, to luxury marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I'm, I'm shocked, you know, when I'm reading like, okay, this is how marketing and communication should be done in luxury. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is, this is smart. And it's actually more sustainable than a lot of the other marketing tactics that we see out there. But it's, yeah, counterintuitive, as you said. So I think there's no better example than Vincent Bastian's book, uh, The Luxury Strategy. And he has, you know, these golden rules of marketing and communication within, within this industry, but also within other industries. So if you want to apply, for example, these rules to other industries such as tech, such as hardware, um, even uh, robots, cars, there's, you know, you can apply these these marketing strategies everywhere. And I think the one that stood out the most to me was the purpose of marketing is not to sell. It's actually to create a dream, to create an image, to spread awareness of a brand in, in a really nice and authentic way. And often that means not even having the product within the communication, and it definitely means not having the price within the communication, which is really counterintuitive. <laughs> that would be an example I would I would share. Uh, so uh, Vincent Bastian's book is going to be in the show notes, uh, so you can click the link to go and have a look and, and buy that. And I haven't read it yet, but on your recommendation, I am going to go and read it. There, there's something <laughs> uh, that I, I, I love talking about the marketing theory and the, 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 the basic tenets of marketing. And you touched on there some of the issues about advertising, which I think we'll come to later. But when you look at the four P's of marketing, product, price, place, promotion, the place P is really important in luxury goods, isn't it? Which maybe more so than in any other form of marketing, place is key. Absolutely. And I think when you look at a lot of the luxury groups today, so LVMH would be the global leader, but you have Caring Group, you have Richemont, then you have groups that are 
very focused on perfumes and cosmetics like L'Oreal Group, Estee Lauder Group, uh, Coty. A lot of those groups actually call themselves retail companies because at the end of the day, they are focused on having this point of sale, having a great service, having a great experience when you're there. Now things are changing a little bit because you know they're online as well. And sometimes their online sales might be directly through their own websites, but through retailers' websites for beauty and cosmetics. That could be, for example, a brand will have their own .com website, but maybe they're selling a lot more online through the likes of Boots or Sephora, depending on what market you're in. But it's definitely something that's really important within luxury. It's having this really great retail experience. And of course, at the moment, this is really difficult if stores are closed or if you're limited to how many people you can have in the store or if people are not yet willing to to go back out um, because of different concerns they have, especially around COVID. So some of the luxury brands have maybe stayed away from from uh, online retail or e-commerce because it, it kind of opened their market to, to too much uh, demand. Would that is that right? Like they, they actually wanted to tether the demand and, and strangle it a little bit so that they could maintain yeah. a luxury position. I think um, a brand that would be a fantastic example of that is Hermes. So they produce really, really small quantities of their products. And if you look at the demand versus what's actually available, they are purposely not meeting that demand because that, that keeps them desirable. It keeps a constant... Um, kind of queue of people waiting, whether it's outside the stores or in the stores or on a, on a waiting list for their different products. And they, they wanted to remain that way. And it's all it's one of the um, the kind of key qualities of something that's luxury as well is this rarity element. So opening up to e-commerce, it would be something that at the moment they wouldn't even be able to meet, actually, but unless mm-hmm. they reserved certain quantities online. So I d- do see brands that are doing interesting things in this area. So they might have an online pop-up. They might have um, a limited edition piece that's only going to be available online and it's going to open up online on a certain date. That's something that's been working really well in China, for example, um, on different platforms, whether it's on their website directly or it could even be exclusivity within um, an online launch within a platform. So it's a, as, as WeChat, they have mini programs and sometimes you're going to have this uh, this concept of a virtual store and it opens its doors at whatever time and everyone can go in and see what's in there and it's going to close then maybe within a few hours or within a few days. But indeed, sometimes tech, which is about making things more easily available, more readily available, it's about speed, it's about access. It can be very, very different to what the the kind of key elements of luxury are, which is about rarity. It's often a very slow process. It's often about making it maybe difficult to buy as well. And that really does turn this kind of standards of marketing on its head, doesn't it? Because in, in most companies I've worked with, the issue is how do we meet, get production to meet demand? You know, the idea of lead, leaving that unspent demand or unserviced demand, it, it would just be crazy. You know, like, well, why would we leave the money at the door? But this is luxury brands looking at a multi-year long-term play, isn't it? In that if you, exactly. if you can meet the demand all the time, next year you, you lose that, um, that rarity. Exactly. And also, I think, you know, we we had discussed this between ourselves as well in terms of sustainability, which is a huge topic right now. Actually, I think the luxury industry also does this because they need to sustain the materials that they're using, as well as brand image and all this. But if you take so actually within luxury as well, you have wines and spirits. So not all wines and spirits are considered luxury, but there are certain brands within that space. Um, if you take Vauve Clicquot, for example, a wonderful champagne brand. Based, of course, in Champagne, because all Champagne needs to be made in the cham- made in the Champagne region for it to qualify. They also have to adhere to other rules and standards. So, if we were to take that as the example, you know, you've got a certain geographical area where you're um, deemed to be a Champagne brand. If your grapes are grown there, if you produce there, that needs to be taken really, really, really um, good care of. Because if you exploit that land, if you exploit that area, if you overproduce or overharvest one year you won't be able to keep producing. And I think that kind of is luxury in a nutshell. You need to take really good care of the craftsmanship, also of the actual land or whatever uh, raw materials are going into your product. Because if you overexploit them next year or in a few years, you, you won't be able to produce your products anymore. Whether you lose out on people, so the craftsmanship, the savoir faire, which is important across all of the luxury industry, whether it's fashion and leather goods or watches and jewellery, 
wines and spirits, even retail that service hospitality um, are in terms of the planet. If you're over exploiting that, you're not going to have what you need anymore to actually, um, you know, input into these products, but then profit as well. Um, so they are the three P's of sustainability, the triple bottom line, also also called that the TBL. And if you are keeping your profit steady, but you're ex- overexploiting people or the planet or a different way around, maybe you're taking really good care of planet, um, but not so much of your profit, then it's not going to work either. So I think there's a sustainability element even to how you're marketing and how you're speaking about your product and keeping your brand relevant for the business to sustain itself as well. So I think it all kind of feeds into that. Over the years you've been working in luxury retail, uh, how would you say sustainability has been viewed? Has it always been the hot topic it is now or is it sort of rising in in priority for them? Very good question. Um, Personally, I'm really interested in sustainability. I wrote my bachelor thesis on it. I wrote my master thesis on it. Actually, my master thesis, it was completely focused just on LVMH group. And I discovered some amazing things, for example, within nearly all of these luxury groups, they've had sustainability divisions since the very, very beginning. And it's really important for them. Again, if you go back to raw materials, they have to make sure that that is available. There's a lot of science behind it as well. And then when you look at people, I think that's probably something that we wouldn't notice. But actually, if you think about it, of course, it's something that's really important. And it's, again, down to that craftsmanship and having this kind of preservation of all of the knowledge that goes into, especially in couture, you'll see it, but in the winemaking as well, in the champagne making, in the watches, all of it. There's so much skill there in terms of the production of these items because a lot of um, luxury goods, they're, they're handmade. I think what's changing now, though, is the definition of sustainability and what does sustainability mean for society and for consumers. And it doesn't just mean having products that will last a long time and having products that have paid a fair wage for the people that have created them, but it's also looking at um, animal welfare. So that's something that's being challenged a lot. You see um, brands like Stella McCartney that are responding to this demand and that are creating vegan brands. You see brands that are saying, okay, we're not going to sell in China because we want our cosmetic brand to be 100% vegan. If you sell cosmetics in China, you know that there's a possibility that they will later be tested on animals. Uh, not always, but there's a possibility that they will be. It's, it's allowed. Hopefully that will change soon though. So I think as consumer shift, consumer behavior shifts, it means that brands have to adapt to that, but also maybe they need to tell their story a little bit more. So there are some brands that have fantastic initiatives, but they don't share them because it's not part of their brand DNA or their brand story to to share those um, those insights. But I think it's something now that as it's desirable for the consumer, I hope brands will be more willing to talk about it. The ones that are doing a lot, but maybe they're just not sharing that story. And it's actually um, the reality for a lot of luxury brands, especially. I want to come back and talk about brand stories shortly, but I just want to stay on sustainability at the moment um, because it, it's interesting and right that you you broaden sustainability out to be more than about just the planet. And it, researching for this and from talking to you, the luxury goods world has a really good record in terms of uh, living wage payments to suppliers and craftspeople involved in in the trade, which is possibly underreported. What what can you talk about that sort of from the people angle of sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is such a pity that it's something that we don't have more visibility into, but definitely during this um, period of uh, COVID and everything, I've seen a lot more shared about it. I think for multiple reasons. Firstly, brands can't really create new content at the moment because they don't have access to showrooms, to models, to photographers, to even shooting locations. So they're kind of digging back into the archives and sharing a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes, brand creators, this kind of stuff. And um, I think a brand that's been doing that really well is actually Loewe. So they're a Spanish fashion brand, L-O-E-W-E. And they have this Casa Loewe concept. Actually, their art, um, artistic director is from Northern Ireland, J.W. Anderson, uh, who has his own brand as well and his own name. But they've been sharing like behind the scenes, all of this intricate uh, design and all of these different, um, basically, kind of the process that goes into 
the design element, but then the creation element as well. So mm -hmm. I really recommend anyone who's interested in that kind of stuff to look at how Loa Vey are doing it because I, I, I love it. And they've been doing, you know, um, live streaming. They've been really showing how it's done and they have the actual artisans showing how they create things, the types of materials, how they source the material, how they um, actually manipulate the material to turn it into the beautiful product that, that they're producing. So I hope it's something that's going to change and that we're going to see more of because believe me, in all of these brands, they have a lot that goes on behind the scenes to create this this end product that you're seeing. And it's really wonderful. It's it's quite magical when you look at it, the the skill that goes into it. Okay, well, I'll uh, we'll get the links to that campaign. And again, check in yes. the show notes if you make it easy for you to find. Um, so talking about brand stories, and if I had to be critical of the luxury goods um, segment, one of the things I would say is that they have probably over relied for two uh, for years on a very formulaic type of creative to to sell their goods. You know, TV ads for luxury brand is Hollywood star plus big background plus famous director equals one minute TV spots. And there's different ways of organizing that, but by and large, it, it's all pretty much the same. Yeah. Here you are talking about the stories and the craft behind the brand. Is that sort of something that's changing now, partly maybe driven by COVID and the fact that they can't shoot those commercials, or is it being driven by other forces in the industry? That's a really good question. And I think the format that you've just spoken about, it, it, it hits the nail on the head, but not just for luxury, but for so many industries. Like if you think to automotive industry, that's the way it was done until quite recently. Even if you think of coffee, so many consumer goods they mightn't have the big name although a lot of them do have celebrities featured in in their advertisements but a lot of other industries have moved on from that format whereas luxury is still using it i do see big changes though and the first reason i see changes in that is actually just consumer behavior so it's really driven by how consumers consume media differently now everyone's online everything's digitalized these longer formats aren't you know they're not digital first they're not made for mobile they're not made to kind of see on the go as you're scrolling. So the TV format will still stay there. So they call it the TVC in the industry, but then they're also going to have um, other types of formats. So if you look at, for example, on YouTube, you're going to have bumper ads, this kind of stuff. So little snippets, bite-sized pieces of, of content and brands are definitely adapting to that and they're creating different types of content. They're having, you know, for the first time ever content that's um, being shot in like a square that's, you know, unheard of before in the industry. Mm -hmm. So you, you do see things changing because of this. So I would say firstly, it's because of consumers and the way that they, if they want to reach the consumer, they need to reach them on the platforms where they are and in the format that they expect or that they want to experience on those different platforms. And then the second reason I think that these things are changing is, you know, as you said, at the moment, People are at home, so I see a really big difference in the type of media that I'm seeing at the moment from brands. And it's because it has to be created almost by the models themselves or by the artistic directors. Uh, for example, Jacques Amus, a French designer, he just shot an entire campaign with Bella Hadid through FaceTime. So that's something we never would have seen before, but <laughs> it's being adopted and people are being agile and they're um, making the most of the technology that we have to allow us to still engage with communities during this time. Brilliant. No, I, I love that. And I, I have an, a whole section of a presentation that's about 10 minutes long, looking at all sorts of different industries and different segments where all the ads look alike, car ads all look alike, mm -hmm. banks, every ad for a bank looks alike, beer, um, and, and digging into the reasons behind that. But I'll not bore everybody with that. We'll talk about that <laughs> another day. Um, what I want to talk to you about now uh, in terms of, of luxury specifically is the impact of China um, kind of in two two pieces because covid's changed everything so what's been happening in the market up until say january the 23rd when covid kind of became a big european issue and then what's happened from january onwards when there's been a huge impact on chinese travelers so i think if we go even before that you know why did china make up such a big chunk of luxury sales and what do we expect to happen in the future? And then sh like short term, what's the impact of the current pandemic on yeah. on that? And it's well, a phenomenal amount, isn't it? The, the Chinese yeah, profit of luxury. Yeah. So 2020, the estimate is that one third of all sales within luxury, um, so luxury goods, as we discussed earlier, 
um, come from China. So one third, but it's expected by 2025 that that could increase to 50%. So the projections are still that it's going to increase, that the luxury industry is still going to grow and um, that the importance of the Chinese and the Chinese travelers is actually going to be um, even more significant than it is today. So it's going to go from a third to a half. But if we look at in the short term, <laughs> what, what's been going on um, and, you know, why were the Chinese consumers so important to begin with? Well, firstly, uh, China almost, um, they, they moved really, really fast, especially in the last 20 years. They went from um, not being a global player in terms of commerce, uh, definitely not being a leader in terms of technology. And they really had a, a very fast pivot when they opened up for business and they opened up uh, internationally onto different markets. And the people within China, they were able to enjoy um, a huge increase in wealth, a huge increase in um, buyer power, and many, many entrepreneurs were born as well. So there was kind of this huge rush to establishing themselves and re-establishing themselves within society. Also, they have a massive population. So even just mm -hmm. the sheer volume of people is going to have a huge impact um, globally when their um, buying power is increasing and uh, their GDP is increasing. So they became really important within luxury for many reasons because they could use luxury as a status symbol, but they never had access to this stuff before as well. So it was something that was really, really coveted. And then you have the Chinese travelers. And why were they so important? It's because when you buy luxury goods while traveling, if you're buying it duty free or just outside of China, you can see it, you know, anything between 15 to 25 percent um, difference in price. So much, much cheaper for them to buy these goods while traveling or while overseas or in the duty-free areas within China itself. Um, Hainan, for example, it's a Chinese duty-free island. So these things exist. <laughs> <laughs> great concept, a duty-free island. Yes, eh? wow. duty-free island. You can go, um, go shopping and play golf. <laughs> so, I mean, people don't really know about it, but it's really yeah. big and they're real um, profit drivers and also brand drivers um, for the luxury industry. So now we're obviously having this huge, you can't even call it a lull, like it has been you know, massively impacting the industry because the Chinese, first of all, weren't um, able to buy domestically because everything was closed for a few weeks, although everything's open again now in, in China. But then we don't have the Chinese travelers who would have been feeding the, the luxury industry and you know visiting the different retail spaces around the world while traveling. However, what what's predicted at the moment is that they're going to buy more domestically during this time mm -hmm. because now everything's open again. And I saw reports of um, uh, a single Hermes uh, store in China making over a million euro of sales, a million dollars of sales, sorry, in its first day when it reopened. So will wow. we, yeah, will we <laughs> see that in other nations and other countries of people having these, uh, you know, huge desires to go shopping? They're calling it uh, revenge shopping, actually. So I'm not sure if we'll see that around the world with other nationalities, but in China, that's been the case. And I do think when travel is allowed again internationally, we're going to see a return of the Chinese travelers. They're going to have an even bigger thirst for traveling. And the predictions remain that, you know, China will become even more important in that scene. And, and is it, um, it's part of the attraction to the lux luxury brands that we've been talking about today that they are European and from outside China. Would an indigenous luxury Chinese brand have the same attraction to the Chinese market, do you think? It's a really good question. And there have been a few um, tests. Um, Shanghai Tang, for example, is a luxury brand created in China, created by Chinese people. It never got the traction that they expected because Chinese people are kind of like, OK, it's a it's kind of trying to promote China in a way. Is it for us? Is it for people that are tourists that are coming to China or is it for people abroad to buy something that's kind of Chinese? So I think their brand identity wasn't strong enough and it wasn't on point enough to understand who who would want to be a part of this brand? But then you have other brands who are doing it in a really nice way. Uh, Sha Ling, for example. So they're actually they're actually part of LVMH Group. It was created by the CEO of Guerlain. And that is a beauty brand. And they focus really on wellness and Chinese rituals. And they have a lot of um, kind of Chinese ingredients, whether it's from teas, uh, matcha, this kind of stuff. So that's something that's doing really well, both in China and internationally. I think there's a huge um, space there for growth because the Chinese consumers are not only interested in these uh, French and Italian brands, uh, luxury brands, they're also really interested in Japanese brands, especially when we look at skincare, also Korean brands. So I think um, there's definitely room there. And as things become uh, more niche and people really find 
uh, brands that identi- that are in line with their identity or that they identify with. There is an opportunity there as well for, I hope, more Chinese designers to emerge as well. And to take advantage of that Chinese market, what sorts of tactical steps are the luxury houses having to take to be available to Chinese customers to accept payments, to communicate? What sort of things are they doing differently for the Chinese market? Um, As you said there, I think payments is probably one of the biggest ones because in China, payments are very different. People aren't using card. Union pay was very big before, and I think it is, it's still quite important with the older um, people within the population. But um, mobile payments in China are the way to go. Everyone uses mobile payments on, on a daily basis. That's how they, that's how they buy um, everything from small goods to, to more expensive items. So it's just basically, for example, when you go into a restaurant, often um, you mo- won't even have menus these days. You'll have a QR code that's either on a piece of paper on the table or even just like stuck to the edge of the table. You scan it, uh, you see the menu directly through this QR code. You're going to order directly even. You might even have a waiter that will take your order. You'll even pay directly uh, through your phone and then someone will bring your food to you. So that's the reality in loads of places, not just within uh, food and beverage industry, but within stores as well. So the usual way you do it is, um, for example, when you're paying for something at the cashier, they're going to show you a QR code. It's a unique one. You scan it and then your payment goes through. So luxury brands really had to adapt to that because not just within China, that's that's one thing, but for the Chinese travelers, even more important. So that's been uh, something I've seen some brands do really, really quickly and really well, or retailers and some brands struggle with more. So Alipay and WeChat Pay would be the big ones. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of communication, it's been on the platforms where... Um, where your audience is so um very very different it even means adapting the the format and the style of the content often whether it's going to be for wechat for weibo um whether you're going to be on tiktok which is now a a global platform really even if it's chinese but it's uh it's important in all markets yeah i I think that that impact of china is fascinating and as it grows to half of the market it'll be interesting to see if luxury pivots to become chinese first European second and what impact that might have in a way that web design always used to do a a desktop website with a mobile phone version that you could look at later. Now web design is done mobile first and scaled up to, um, uh, up to desktop size. Do you see that sort of that approach perhaps happening in the next five to 10 years as the Chinese market represents so much more demand for luxury houses? I think for the brands that exist today, the, you know, well-established European luxury brands, part of their desirability is the heritage that they have and that they keep running throughout their campaigns, throughout their collections. Um, you know, they consistently will go back to the archives. They'll cons- consistently look at what the original artistic directors do or, um, you know, what did our, what did our founder care about? What were his symbols? What were, um, what were his passions or her passions? And I think you don't want to dilute that. And that's really important. And I don't see brands completely adapting themselves for markets. You know, they'll make sure that if they're, for example, translating campaigns or translating call to actions or translating anything in terms of content, which online is a big thing because you have a lot of written content. It has to be done in a in a very tasteful way. And you have to have someone local to help you do that, to make sure that it's in a way that stays really true to the brand. But I, mm-hmm. I don't see brands change themselves to become a Chinese first brand because I don't think the Chinese consumers would find it desirable anymore. I think that they might think it's um, opportunistic or that it just it dilutes the brand heritage. Um, but also, I think, again, if we go back to the, the sustainability element, the, um, you know, people, planet and profit, I think there's a sustainability element that's just image focused as well and keeping the image alive and keeping it the way it is. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting to see. I think yeah. it, if you look at technology, like the technology industry, you know, previously China would have been looking to Silicon Valley. What are they doing? What's being created? And there would have been so many things copied. You know, China is is notorious for uh, its counterfeit products, for copying goods, copying. You know, you can find like a fake version of everything in in, in China. You can even find you know entire stores where everything is completely replicated, but it's it's not authentic. Although it is changing, there are, it's, there's a big lockdown on that. But if we look, you know, specifically at the you know, software side of stuff, even hardware, now it's it's starting to change because actually China became so advanced, um, both in hardware and in software, that people are actually looking looking to the east now for the first time for inspiration and to say, oh, what are they doing in China and how does it work there? Live streaming that took off in China, 
way before it took off here. It's no, we're nowhere near the um, interest levels of, of live streaming than we are in Asia. Um, if we look at mobile payments again, they've completely pioneered that use of QR codes everywhere you go. There's a QR code in Asia to have real ease of access to information, um, this kind of thing. So. Excellent. We'll discover um, we, later. Back, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we've come back to talk about sustainability, and there, there is one question I'm wanting to ask about that with luxury brands in relation to this the destruction of stock, uh, which I think is why maybe some people don't know about the good things that luxury brands do because they only ever see on the news that brand A has burnt thousands of pounds worth of goods or destroyed them or whatever. Um, Talk a bit first about why they do that, um, because not everybody will know why you just burn thousands, ten, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of stock. And secondly, what is the future of the industry in that with that sort of approach? Great point. I think in terms of stock destruction, it's it's interesting because not all brands do it, absolutely not. But the few brands that have done it in the past have been massively called out for doing so. So if you look at why do they do it? There are two main reasons. Firstly, if uh, stock is in any way um, damaged. So along the production, if it has imperfections, they don't want that. That stock can't be sold. It's not perfect. Um, it's it's fault. It's faulty. So if they're not able to recuperate the materials, they need to um, make sure that that product is in a position that it can't be sold. So they don't want something faulty to be sold, maybe on the black market or wherever you might find it. So they need to have this item in a in a state that no one would buy it, no one would want to use it. So that's one of the reasons. And then the second reason why stock could be disrupted is if they haven't sold everything. So if there's been an overproduction of stock, they don't want the market to be diluted. They don't want to have sales. You'll see in luxury industry that very rarely would be a sale or any discounts. Um, again, it's down to the fact that they produce smaller quantities and they don't want to dilute brand image by bringing too much to the market or exploiting too much, uh, perhaps the raw materials that they need to produce these items. So they're the two main reasons. And I think uh, it was uh, Burberry who um, was really like attacked in the media. I think it was probably a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. It's been a while now. And it was actually on their cosmetics specifically. And it was talking about how much of the um, items produced within their cosmetics line. So it was uh, perfumes and, and lipsticks and mascaras, that kind of thing, were destroyed afterwards. And they had to make a statement about it afterwards and address it and say, no, they're going to do better. So I think since then, brands have been really like, okay, wh why do we destroy stuff? And, um, you know, what's the, what else can we do and how can we do better? And now in the era of COVID, when a lot of brands have produced too much or perhaps they haven't been able to finish items. You know, things were in production and they were being created and then there was a lockdown and people weren't able to continue creating. Um, there's been a real question mark over this. So I see some really creative things happening. Um, Philip Lim, uh, an American brand, uh, American Asian designer, he has, you know, gone back to his archives and he's been selling um, things online that were just kind of kept aside before and he's saying you know what these are still beautiful pieces they're still relevant um they're timeless pieces they're pieces that are built to to last a long time there's no shame in going back to those collections and selling what, what wasn't sold before and then other things we're seeing is upcycling and i think that's where there's a really big opportunity especially now for brands that perhaps they weren't able to get collections to market quick enough and maybe they feel they've missed the boat maybe it was a spring summer collection or um even autumn winter it's maybe it's going to be late. It's not going to be ready on time. How can they restyle those items um, to have them relevant for the, the following season so that they're not sitting there dead stock and that they're not perhaps even used? And, and there's been some other innovations in the industry in terms of we're back to the P of place again uh, with sites like the Outnet um, coming into the market. Not for every brand, but how does, you know, talk about that because I know you shop so occasionally at the Outnet. <laughs> yes, I love the Outnet. So the Outnet, it's the same concept as um, Net-a-Porter or any of these online pure player retailers, but they only sell stock that's um, from previous seasons. So nothing is a current collection. And they work with brands who are open to doing stuff like that. And they have hundreds of brands on their website. So I would recommend checking them out. So they, of course, have Stella McCartney, who's probably the pioneering, um, you know, original luxury, but really sustainability focused brand. But they also have newer emerging brands like Ghani, for example. Um, and yeah, their whole idea is old stock. It doesn't mean that it can't be sold or that it's not relevant anymore, or that it's not valuable. There's still a place for it. If brands don't want to have it in their stores anymore because their stores, as you said, you know, that this is it's their 
their place, but it's also their promotion. So they need to perhaps only have the current collection in there. Often these stores have very limited space as well because they, they don't fill their shelves. Um, usually they're, they're quite empty looking. So there's a digital space for them to be in that would be on places like that. Brilliant. Let's talk a little bit more about you as well, because you have obviously all the, a lot of experience in luxury, and you have done a, a few things recently to help uh, fashion students and people coming up into the industry to, to kind of get ahead. Can you talk about that, please? Sure. <laughs> Happy to talk about it. Um, so I noticed kind of from being in the luxury industry before, and myself, I'm really interested in art and in design, and I felt that a lot of artists and designers didn't necessarily have the digital tools to promote themselves or to launch their brands or even to sell sell their goods online. So it was really hard to bridge that gap for many emerging designers. Like they've got these beautiful products, they've created wonderful collections, whether they're still in school or recent graduates. And there was a big struggle to bring those items to market. Um across like many different uh, touch points. You know, how do you actually create content? Where do you put it? How do you get found online? How do you tell a story? What is a brand story? In most design schools, you know, if you're a textile or jewelry or fashion designer, you're not actually taught about marketing and you're not definitely not taught about, oh, you know, where are you going to sell? Are you going to put yourself on this e-retail website? And if you don't sell that sock, stock, go check out uh, the outlet. You know, it's not something that's um, really on these curriculums. So I started a project called Textile tech x style and the idea was to give you know the basic digital tools to emerging designers so i launched it with the national college of art and design here in dublin and we had one semester already we had 40 students in the program and it was fantastic we you know it was a pilot and we will have it integrated uh, in the curriculum next year but it was something that helped the students understand this is what's out there so we helped them use uh, free tools things like Google Trends, which I recommend everybody to use. It's fantastic. And you can look up anything under the sun and you're going to see where are people interested in the topic? Is it a rising topic? Is it something um, that could be interesting for your consumers of your brand? You can also find out um, what are the related topics that people are interested in. So, you know, we help designers actually define collections using Google Trends. So having like data-driven collections. Um, Keyword planner, launching a website and YouTube using... Um, video content that you have showing people what happens behind the scenes. How do you create your your products? Some of the students were doing wonderful things. Um, uh, Georgie Dan was one of the designers and she was working with um, a bike repair store and she was getting old uh, tires, uh, tire tubes from them. She was recycling them and turning them, turning them into a material that could be used instead of leather. Like, so innovative what? and it looks fantastic. Brilliant. Yeah, she's creating um, pieces out of that, like leather jackets. Anything that you could create in leather, she'll be using this instead. So I'm really excited to see how that evolves. And I hope that, well, I know that it's possible, you know, giving young and emerging designers with little or no budgets, marketing budgets, there is a lot out there for them today to still launch themselves and to, to create communities online and to engage with people that are interested in, in what they're creating. And I suppose in, in some ways that the rise of digital has meant there's never been an easier time. And I say easy, I should put it in, in inverted commas because <laughs> easy doesn't do it justice. But there's never been a better time to be able to reach direct to a community of people, wherever they may be. Before, you said you grew up in Galway. I grew up in a place called Bradford in the north of England. If you weren't interested in sports and drinking where I grew up, there was no community around there. And that, that was it. And sometimes, you know, you heard the stories of people who went to London because they liked fashion or music or mm. whatever. But now you don't have to, you can meet that community from your bedroom. And, and is that yeah. kind of helping them reach those communities? Is that part of maybe the future of fashion? I really think so. And especially now when the fashion industry is so challenged because of COVID, a lot of things have been amplified. Um, fashion shows. There are going to be no fashion shows in the upcoming fashion weeks because you can't have crowds gathering, you can't have people traveling, you perhaps haven't been able to create the full collection that you would have liked to. There's so many challenges right now. So everything's being done from home. You're going to have virtual shows, you're going to have uh, virtual reality try-ons, this kind of stuff. So I think it's definitely going to be the future of fashion. Maybe it came sooner than expected because of the pandemic, but it's really caused everyone to challenge themselves on you know, why did we not address this problem before? Or why didn't we not really think about this before? And how can we make things change for the better? 
and technology is giving people the the tools to do that. It doesn't mean you have to shut down your brand and you're not going to be able to trade anymore. It just means, okay, I need to digitalize. I need to pivot. I need to see how I, what technology is there that I can use. And if it doesn't exist, why don't I get it developed? Or why don't I partner with somebody who can develop it for me? Brilliant. Um, while we're talking about the course that you've, you've helped develop, what bit of advice do you wish somebody had have given you when you were 21 and, and, uh, and setting out on your career journey? Yeah. Um, I think probably the most important thing is just to don't take no for an answer and don't think that if someone says it's not possible that that's the case because really not that long ago, six months ago, if somebody said, I think all of the biggest fashion brands in the world should all just digitalize their fashion shows, of course it would have been a no, but things change and people need to adapt. And because of the changes that are happening now, it's, it's, I think it will have a, a long lasting effect on not just the fashion industry, but every industry. And I think right now, what I would tell people to do is really brush up on their technology skills because there's a really big need for it, especially people interested in, in the fashion or in the luxury industry. You know, there's always, there's going to be more and more need for people with, with these technical, when I say technical, I mean like digital skills, um, yeah. whether it's digital marketing or whether it's, um, focused on e-commerce or whether it's digitalizing the in-store experience. That's something, you know, when we go back to the stores, when we go back to being able to shop in physical spaces, which I think people, a lot of people will still want, um, we're going to have to be innovative in how we do it. And now is the time to brush up on those skills so that when the time is right, you'll have the the right tools to meet the opportunity. And I do think people will, will come back. I know there's a lot being written about the fear in the market and things like that, yeah. which is absolutely right. But uh, mm. you only have to look at the scenes from the UK over the last weekend or so when lockdown restrictions were eased ever so slightly yeah. and everybody went back to the beach, which was, you know, the great old British tradition of, of heading back to the beach. Yes. And I, I think, you know, I, I've described it as gradually and then suddenly people will just come back in dribs and drabs and then it'll be, oh, Black Friday or there's a sale or whatever it is, we'll just get everybody back out in, in their drove. So uh, I don't think human behavior that, that has evolved over hundreds of years you know, gets thrown out just by six months of the challenge. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see what comes back. But I think normality or a version of normality will come back. I think so too. And, you know, I hope we will um, be able to go back to, well, maybe to move forward to a new normal um, in some sense. But I also hope that a lot of the stuff that have that we've learned and that we've developed over these last months will prevail and that they'll continue to evolve. Because I know, especially on the sustainability aspect of things, um, we've come a long way in a short period of time because pe things were put basically in the spotlight and people were challenged, brands were challenged. Consumers also challenged themselves. You know, why was I buying so much before? Why was I flying so much before um, myself? I'm very guilty of that, a lot of travel. So, yeah, I think time will tell. And I think, we'll, you know, people forget things easily as well. So I think in a few months time, <laughs> we'll have to check in with ourselves and say, OK, you know, did I... Uh, keep doing any of the things I said I would do or um, am I back to doing everything I was doing before that I know isn't great for the planet or for myself or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we're definitely great at deluding ourselves, that's for sure. That is yep. for sure. <laughs> uh, so I ask everybody who comes on the show for book recommendations of uh, things you've read, uh, ideally about marketing or business, but anything that you'd really want to recommend to the listeners. Um, what, where would you go for that? Um, so the luxury strategy, which I mentioned before, I think even if you're not interested in the luxury industry, um, our luxury goods, it's a brilliant book because it focuses on so many elements of, um, the four P's, as you said, but also just the concept of marketing and communication. And I think if you apply any of those rules to your strategy for whatever industry you work in, I think it can do wonders because it really makes you think about brand image, which is important no matter what industry you're in. And another book that I really found interesting, if we go back to China, was the house that Jack Ma built. And it basically looks at the entrepreneurial journey of Jack Ma and how he developed multiple platforms and multiple uh, tech companies. It's actually quite similar to the journey of um, of Jeff Bezos from Amazon, for example. You know, he struggled for a long time. No one listened to him. Everyone told him, no, it's not going to happen. This is not this is not what people want. He started off as a translator. He had a translating company. And then that grew into what we have today as like Alibaba Group. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I would okay. recommend that one. Yeah. 
Great. And as again, there'll be links around somewhere, whether it's on YouTube and the comments or wherever. Just look around your app or wherever you're listening and there'll be links to both those books from there. Uh, so my final question for you is what question were you expecting me to ask today that I haven't asked? <laughs> Good question. Um, Just to put I, you on the spot. I thought you might ask me um, how someone from Galway ended up in Paris working in the luxury industry, but I guess I kind of addressed it at the beginning. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't want to be too disparaging because I love Galway, <laughs> but it's not necessarily known as the epicentre of the fashion universe, is it? No. And that, I guess, goes back to the um, the advice that I'd give to people. I think and today we're in a globalised world. No matter where you live or what you do, you can do anything. So, yeah. uh, where, where did you go? Did you leave Galway to go to university in Dublin first, or did you study in Galway or just go straight yeah. to Paris at 18? Um, so I knew that I really wanted to study in France and get really fluent in French and, you know, get a degree from there as well so I could live there later. So I did a double degree with uh, DCU, Global Business in French. So I did two years in DCU with summers and working in France, doing internships to brush up on French or to just learn French, basically, <laughs> before going there for third and fourth year of university um, where I studied in Reims, which is in the Champagne region. So surrounded by Champagne houses and production. <laughs> Terrible. Sounds like a really tough life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Ash, thank you very much for your time. I, I've loved this. Uh, the, the luxury segment isn't something that you get to work in every day uh, and something I've never been lucky enough to work in. So it, it's been really enlightening to find out so much about the differences and what happens there and the, certainly the impact of China as well, a huge player coming up there um, on the rail. So uh, thank you very much for your time, Ash, and uh, good luck. Great. Thank you so much, Andy. Let me just say again, thank you to Ash for doing that interview. I found it really, really interesting listening to that. Luxury works like no other segment, right? The whole demand management is just completely different to any other sector, right? Most companies, you're like, we've got a product that sells. Let's see if we can sell as many of them as we can. In luxury, we've got a product that sells. Stop selling them long-term thinking you can sell more and more and more if you like and you make more money short term you could put it on sale and you go wow we're getting rid of unused stock no not in luxury don't do it on sale don't talk about price strangle the demand so that you don't have too much why because next year you want the queue coming outside the shop again they actively want people to miss out on buying their products doesn't make any sense most of you if you go in and propose that to your uh, to your marketing director your cmo or your ma your ceo or whatever be like what throw all demand so that we don't sell as much no that doesn't make any sense but it works in luxury um i haven't read the book um that ash recommends by Vincent bastian um but i am going to do because i think there's a lot of lessons you can learn from there certainly in building a brand and keeping the value in that and uh, really being able to manage it now that is a business that's been turned on its head they they often didn't sell online and as ash talked about now that with covid around they've had to pivot from physical stores into uh, e-retailing um, there's pictures of Dior shops being boarded up as soon as COVID hit and they had to shut down. So it's been a real challenge for the industry, but one that they've really tackled in a very uh, luxury way. Um, so they're looking at that and it's fascinating, really, really interesting. And I enjoyed talking about sustainability and looking at that in quite a broad way and looking at the, 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 the abuse. Yeah, look, abuse that company's got for burning stuff. It makes no sense from the environment, but at least when you look through the lens of uh, managing demand in luxury, you can see why they did it. I would still say that the organization shouldn't have done it, and I, I don't know if they'll be doing it again, but at least you can start to understand the thought process that got them there, as flawed as that thinking was. Anyway, um, Ash, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed that. Uh, right, we're into the, uh, the end of the show, really. So I'd just like to say again, thank you very much to, we had two top tips today, uh, which is Emma Burdett from Visit Belfast and Danielle Phillips from Inside Out Communications. Ash McDonald, obviously, who did the main interview. 
uh, please do reach out. You can find it on uh, LinkedIn and on Instagram. Uh, links in the show notes, obviously, as there is to the books that we mentioned. You can click on. There's also a page on my website. Um, you can find it from eximomarketingstrategy.com slash podcast. You can find a list of every book that every guest has ever recommended. So a link to go and buy it. Yes, they are uh, affiliate links. I'll make maybe 10 pence for every book that you buy. But listen, they're all there if you want them. Thank you again to our sponsors, Moye Coffee, M-O-Y-E-E, coffee.ie or .co.uk. Please do check them out. And um, not just because we're sponsoring the show, it's my coffee of choice and it is amazing. So please dive in and have a go at that. Also, one last thanks to Aaron and Pablo at Inside Voice who make this show sound so slick. Um, that's got nothing to do with me and everything to do with them. Thank you. That is episode four wrapped up. Episode five, we're back to having a giveaway um, because uh, we're talking to Michael Mitchell, who is the brand director at MailChimp based in Atlanta. Uh, MailChimp have sent some swag, which I'll uh, show you and talk about on the next show, which you can win if you listen to the interview with Michael. Really uh, did it uh, last week, really in-depth interview talking about brand, talking about um, Black Lives Matter again and how that protest has sort of... Um, swelled across the US and it really interesting. Michael's a great guy, um, a great thinker about marketing, about many issues and uh, a really interesting interview. That show comes out just after the 4th of July. We thought we'd bring the Americans back because it, just because of the 4th of July. So the next episode comes out on Tuesday, the 7th of July. Please do get in touch and let me know what you think. And at Andy Jarvis on Twitter, that's A-N-D-I-J-A-R-V-I-S. Or stick a comment if you're watching on YouTube in the comments. It really does mean a lot that you spend your time with me. So thank you and we'll see you on the 7th. <laughs> <laughs>